0: Now would you open your Bibles to Proverbs. That's where we are. Proverbs chapter 5. Marriage was given by God to man that mankind might be fulfilled, might blossom. But marriage has a tendency to erode more often than it should. Saturday Evening Post had an article sometime back called The Seven Ages of the Married Cold. It's the reaction of a husband to his wife during their first seven years of marriage. First year, he says, sugar dumpling, I'm really worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle and there's no telling about these things with all of this strep going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and a good rest. I know the food's lousy, but I'll be bringing your meals in from that gourmet restaurant that you love so much. Second year. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've called the doctor and asked him to rush over here. Now you go to bed like a good girl, please, just for Papa. Third year. Maybe you would better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I'll bring you something. Have you got any canned soup? Fourth year. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you fed the kids, washed the dishes, and finished the floors, you better lie down. Fifth year. Why don't you take a couple aspirin? Sixth year. I wish you would just gargle or something instead of sitting around all evening barking like a seal. Seventh year. For Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? Now, men, don't get any ideas from this. This is a relationship that has eroded as often it does, and when it does, it is not as humorous as what we just read. What's the problem in these relationships? Well, untended relationships like a beautiful garden that's meant to grow. Instead, if left untended, the weeds can come in. Weeds of indifference, or even weeds of an affair, weeds of divorce, can choke up that which is meant to be so beautiful, so enticing, so alluring, can become so erosive. It is funny to watch Americans date. It seems like, well, it's very much like politics. You put on all the schmooze before. You fix your hair up. You look the best. You act the best. You're on best behavior. You do all sorts of things. But then what happens? As soon as some couple say, I do, it's sort of like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde happens. And all of that stops. That relationship is left untended. The spark is extinguished. That's why Paul in Ephesians 5 says that marriage, he says, must be nourished and cherished. Those were his words. Nourished and cherished to grow strong. Last week we began in chapter 5 talking about sex education Solomon style. And we took the downside of it. We talked about the pursuit of sexual passion. How an affair begins. It begins with a look. It begins with words. They're very enticing. We talked about how ancient cultures dripped with immorality. How modern society gushes with immorality. It's all around us. Then we talked about the pain of sexual promiscuity. The dangerous consequences of an affair. Of sex out of marriage. How that you get hurt. Your spouse gets hurt. Your children get hurt. The church gets hurt. The unbelievers are kept from coming to Christ in many cases. And it hurts the heart of God. Today we want to continue with the upside of the equation. And we want to look at the pattern of sexual pleasure within marriage. And then finally, the path of sexual purity. Now, before we do, I want you to hear something. After the first uh, service last week, we got a phone call. I got one on my answering machine upstairs from a man who had just been at the first service. And he heard what I read at the end from Otis of Wisconsin writing to Ann Landers about how his marriage was broken up. If you were here, you remember that letter. He had gotten... Out of uh, the service, into his car, was going out of the parking lot, and he called the church. And I wanted you to hear what he said.
1: Hey Skip, uh, you are so lucky today. I'm just pulling out of the parking lot here, and on the telephone, I almost stood up at the end. You didn't need to read Ann Landers, for I am that guy. I am exactly that guy. I almost stood up and yelled that. Please, people, listen to this guy for every single word ounce, Everything he's saying is so true. I was a guy married for 17 years to one of the nicest people on earth, left for a runner-up Miss Texas. Uh, Did not see my daughter grow up. My daughter's now 25, going on 14. Uh, Tremendous problems. Making $180,000 a year, lost my business. My wife was only interested in my money. Her child was not happy with her stepfather. Same, same story. Lost my business. Ended up in the, with a failed business that created the tremendous IRS debt. Fought the IRS tooth and nail for 10 years. Won nothing. Except for the fact that I fought them. And won nothing. And came out won nothing. Just the pain of it. Uh, lost my business. Declared bankruptcy. Now work for... Uh, a pittance here in albuquerque uh and i think i think it's so true that that uh, god forgives
0: he went on to talk about how god has forgiven and restored many things in his life but just the pain of stepping out of those boundaries well today let's look at the antidote for all of that shall we keeping marriage pure and keeping sex within marriage i'm going to say some things today that uh for some reason, some people would think it shouldn't come from a pulpit. After all, you know, sex and church, they don't mix, right? I think the one place it ought to be spoken from is the pulpit. We ought to bring it back from Beavis and Bonehead. After all, it was God's idea. And God meant it to delight, but it has been that which destroys. Let's look at the pattern of sexual pleasure. Beginning in verse 15, his admonition to his son, "'Drink water from your own cistern, "'and running waters from your own well. "'Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, "'streams of water in the streets, "'let them be only your own, "'and not for strangers with you. "'Let your fountain be blessed, "'and rejoice with the wife of your youth. "'As a loving deer and a gracious or graceful doe, "'let her breasts satisfy you at all times.' And always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman, and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. Solomon compares married love to drinking from a fresh water well or water collected in a cistern. And he compares, compares a sexual immorality to drinking polluted water from a sewer. One will destroy or has the potential to, and the other will delight. One is a river and the other is a swamp. And so let's look at it. The pattern of sexual pleasure. Now, I've sort of summed up the pattern in two words. Monogamy and enjoyment. Monogamy and enjoyment. Keep it singular, that's monogamy. And then keep it hot. Keep it hot. The enjoyment factor. Let's look down at verse 18. He says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with, notice, the wife of your youth. That is the one you were married to when you were young and still are married to. It's clear in the scripture and it's intimated here that God's pattern is a one man, one woman relationship for one lifetime. Now I know it doesn't always happen that way. And there are factors that are extenuating and things can happen. But that is God's original design. One man, one woman for a lifetime. The other night I was watching some late-night show, some psychologist interviewing two guys who were talking about dating. They were probably around 40 years old. They sounded 16. They talked about, well, you know, we've been dating for a few months, but I don't know if I can make a commitment. And they're talking about all of their short-term dating relationships. They're in their 40s now. And they could not and would not make any kind of lifelong commitment. And one would ask, why is that so prevalent today? Why are there so many short-term commitments? Today we measure commitment in microseconds. And there's no lifelong relationship. Well, it's easy to see. Look around and you see that one out of every two divorces or marriages end up in the divorce court. And so people are really gun-shy of getting married because of divorce possibilities. When, in this society, when you talk about one man, one woman, for one lifetime, some people think you're extraterrestrial. You are weird. That is so outmoded. They say, look, that's even unreal. You can, that's unrealistic. As I was listening to these two gentlemen being interviewed, there was something that was constantly recurring in their conversation. They were talking about their plans, their wants, their needs. That is the reason why you have very few long term committed relationships. Self centeredness destroys them. What's in it for me? It's always what I will get out of something. It used to be years ago that the first thing young people thought of when getting out of high school, going into college, or getting out of college was getting married. Today it's the last thing. It's last on their list. Now, I am certainly not saying that monogamous, lifelong relationships have no problems. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, oftentimes that's when many problems begin. Because you are now in a relationship with somebody who is as imperfect as you are, and you are called to get along. And you see all of their imperfections. And I would say you see all of your imperfections. You thought you were so warm, so easygoing, so easy to get along with. Ha! Now you have somebody living next to you. Telling you the truth about yourself. And it's not that easy. But you don't run from it. Just because it's not easy. That's what hones you. That's what takes off the rough edges in your life. The buzzword today is incompatibility. Well, we are just incompatible. Let me tell you something. Everybody on earth is incompatible with everybody else on earth. (laughs) Oh, no, but that other person that I'm having this allure. No, listen. Just be with them for a period of time, and you'll see all of the flaws that you saw in your other mate or that you have yourself. Everybody has flaws. And getting along is certainly not easy. That's why Ben Franklin had it right when he said, keep your eyes wide open before marriage and half shut afterwards. I think that's good advice. But the pattern for sexual pleasure is clearly, unmistakably, within the parameters of marriage. And guess what? It's more enjoyable. Two uh, researchers from the Family Life Seminars concluded that Christians generally experience A higher degree of sexual enjoyment than non-Christians. Citing from a Red Book article published entitled Sexual Pleasure Survey showing the preferences of a hundred thousand women, the article said, quote, sexual satisfaction is related significantly to religious belief. With notable consistency, the greater the intensity of a woman's religious convictions, the likelier she is to be highly satisfied with the sexual pleasures of marriage. Now, God's intentions are simple. God's intentions are stay pure until marriage and stay married until dead. That's God's underlying original intention. Now, again, I realize that is not always possible. I realize that a spouse may go out on you or leave you. There's all sorts of factors that can cause breakup of marriages But I am speaking specifically to a trend today that is very popular. It's called living together. It's not even winked at. Oh yeah, well we're just living together. We're trying it out first. Since 1970, the number of Americans living together—it's increased 400 percent. That has become the norm: living together. However, two sociologists in a recent study showed that people who live together first are more apt to fail at their marriage than people who live together after they say their vows. One article said, Studies show, based on 50 years of data, 50 years is a long time to study something, that couples who live together before marriage have a 50% greater chance of divorce than those who don't. Those who cohabit also have a less satisfying and more unstable marriage. Why? The researchers have found that those who live together later later regretted having violated their moral standards and felt a loss of personal freedom to exit out the back door. Furthermore, and in keeping with the theme of marital bonding, they have stolen a level of intimacy that is not warranted at that point, nor— Has it been validated by the degree of commitment to one another? I found an interesting phrase in that little article. They have stolen a level of intimacy. They have stolen a level of intimacy. You say, why is that so interesting? It's in light of what Proverbs says about marital intimacy. Would you turn over to Proverbs 9 for just a moment? Keep your finger here, we'll be back. Look at Proverbs 9. Same context, same stuff he's speaking about. Intimacy, sex, and marriage. In verse 17 of chapter 9, he talks about it out of marriage. Stolen water is sweet. Now remember, the article said they have stolen a level of intimacy. Here Solomon says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Living together is immoral. It is a violation of God's law. It undermines a marriage relationship and can often lead in divorce. The Bible says it, and the researchers will say amen to it. So, the pattern of sexual pleasure is a lifelong relationship, a monogamous relationship. Secondly, enjoyment. Look back at verse 18. Let's begin in verse 15. I love the way it's put. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well speaks of refreshment, enjoyment. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of your youth. The word rejoice is the Hebrew word samach. It means to brighten up. To brighten up. And it could be translated to make cheerful or glad or joyful. Solomon wrote again in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9, Live joyfully with a wife to whom you love all the days of your life. Last Sunday, right before this service, second service, a man walked up to me. And uh, shook my hand and he said, you don't know me, but my wife and here are visiting from uh, the east today. We hear you the last couple years when you speak at the Billy Graham Training Center, the Cove. We hear you on the radio back there. And we thought that we'd come and visit you today. I said, well, that's a long visit. He says, well, we had our honeymoon in Santa Fe years ago, 45 years ago to be exact. And today is our wedding anniversary. We're married 45 years and I thought I'd take her on a second honeymoon to Santa Fe. And so after... Our time together yesterday and last night, we thought we would come and have church here this morning. And I thought, there's a guy who enjoys his marriage. Now, rejoice with the wife of your youth. It means more than sexual enjoyment, though we'll get into that in a minute. I think it means, first of all, to enjoy each other's company. To enjoy each other's company. Now, the context here is the bliss of sex in marriage. But the bliss of sex in marriage begins way before 10 p.m., Somebody once said, if you want to have an energized sex life and marriage, try a little tenderness the other 23 and a half hours of the day. You enjoy each other's company. You enjoy being with each other during the day as much as you can. Intimacy begins with harmony. Stay in touch with each other. Spend quality time together. A young wife expressed to her husband how she felt about this by these words, please. Come and take my hand. Let's walk. Give me you. Eyes saying hi. Glances saying I care. handholds that let me know you're only teasing. Hugs saying thank you for being you. Kisses that gently want me. And then love that says I'll be here tomorrow and every day hereafter. So enjoy each other's company. Secondly, I think it would imply enjoy each other emotionally. Now, nobody has to tell a husband and wife that they're different emotionally. They learn this very quickly. They react to things very differently. And as our makeup is so different from the other, to me, that's the thrill of it. Trying to figure the other person out, to understand the other person, though you might not agree totally. Peter says in 1 Peter to husbands, Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with Understanding. We think about things differently. And instead of saying, well, you shouldn't feel that way, she does feel that way. That's a ridiculous statement. Or he does feel that way. Live with them with understanding. If we do not do that, then emotionally we become like islands. We are different. But if we don't build bridges, in our differences, constantly emotionally, we will become isolated and very, very lonely. Do you remember a nineteen sixty five Paul Simon song, I am a Rock, I Am an Island? Some of you how many remember back that far? Oh. Back in the old days. I was thinking about that song as I was preparing this message, so I quickly got on the internet and pulled it down. And here's some of the words to that song. Listen to it. I have built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I am shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. Too many times, that's how people live. They don't enjoy each other emotionally. They don't take time to work through the differences, to share their fears, their dreams, their secrets. That builds intimacy, enjoying those differences. That's why uh, Peter said, dwell with understanding with them. It's one thing to dwell with them, but it's another thing to dwell with understanding. Now, it's interesting to me that both Peter and Paul, whenever they discuss the home, marriage, family, they always begin with the guys. There's a reason for this. Because we are the initiators, men. We should treat our wives in a way that we want to be treated. They respond to our treatment of them. Somebody put it this way. If a husband has enough horse sense... To treat his wife like a thoroughbred, she'll never turn into an nag. <laughs> Begins with us, guys. Then I think it also means that we enjoy each other spiritually as well. We have a spiritual walk that we must be building up with one another, staying in the Word together, praying with one another and enjoy the differences in spiritual perspective. You will look at the Scripture a certain way. Your spouse will see it an entirely different way. And it's, it's a beautiful aspect. I'll oftentimes bring things up to my wife, and she'll share some great insights into the Word. In fact, many times before a message, I'll you know, run things by her just to get her spiritual insights. They're so valuable to me. I've heard her teach here at The women. And she'll say things, and I'll think, That's good. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to rip it off. <laughs> People will think I came up with it, and she came up with it. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her, that he might cleanse, sanctify her with the washing of the water by the word. That's what husbands ought to be doing with their wives. Nourishing, cleansing the relationship by the word of God. Then, of course, and this is where our context really comes in, husbands and wives should enjoy each other sexually. Notice Solomon is very, very open and frank about this. Verse 19, As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times, and always be enraptured with her love. The word satisfy, and I'm going to get into this, in the Hebrew is a word that means to be satiated, saturated, or to have one's full, as in being filled in drink. And then the word enraptured in that verse means literally to swerve, meander, to roll, reel, or to be intoxicated with. It was a word that was used to describe the reeling of a drunken man. Be intoxicated with her love. Think about that. If you think God is a prude man, think again. The way he describes love and sex in marriage. God does not see sex as merely functional or procreational for the propagation only of the human race, but to be enjoyed within marriage. Not as a duty, but as a joy. And when marriage is what God intended it to be, it becomes rapturous. C.S. Lewis, and I love what he said, he said, pleasure is God's invention, not the devil's. God invented this stuff. And Solomon talks about it with Great detail. Um, In the beginning, when God created husband and wife, brought them together in the garden, Adam and Eve, it says God brought the woman to the man, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. There they were. Absolutely vulnerable, totally naked in each other's presence. Not blushing, not ashamed. You don't have to be ashamed either when, in the proper context, you enjoy your spouse. Not ashamed at all. It is only when sin entered that relationship in the garden that embarrassment and shame and cover up became the norm rather than open vulnerability. Now, when I think about that verse, however, I have to quickly think about my own honeymoon. And I think you can relate it's not easy it's embarrassing I mean here you've dated this girl and you've prayed together and you've talked about serving God together and then you're married and uh, our first night was spent in Ventura, California we took our honeymoon up the coast where we lived and uh, Lenny we didn't have any money Lenny's grandfather said hey don't worry I'll take care of the hotel arrangements and he gave us a honeymoon suite in a hotel in Ventura I thought oh all right." so we check into the hotel the guy gives us the key to the honeymoon suite we walk up And it was like the grossest thing I've ever experienced. Pink carpet. Red and pink velvet wallpaper. Little cherubs, lamps. Naked cherub lamps all over the place. Mirrored ceilings. And I walk in and go, Oh, I'm going to call the guy and change the room. And I did. I said, Can we have a different room? And he said, It's pretty gross, isn't it? He said, you got to live with it. All the rooms are booked up tonight. You have to stay there. Oh, thanks a lot. But now listen to Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable, and the bed is undefiled. That doesn't mean you have to change your sheets every week. The whole idea of the bed undefiled is the bed of sex. Marriage is honorable. And the bed is undefiled. It's a sacred experience by God. The Greek word for bed, you'd be interested to know, is the word koite. Where we get the word coitus, the act of sexual intercourse. In the Greek, it literally means cohabitation by the implanting of the male sperm. Now, we've heard a lot about abuse last week. Sex out of marriage. But don't get the idea that God condemns it. He doesn't. He condones it in the right place. What God condemns, is the fire burning out of the fireplace. That's the example we used last time. Fire in the fireplace is great. Out of the fireplace, it's condemned. But listen, when fire's in the fireplace, let it burn, man, and burn hot. Drink water from your own cistern, man. It's very graphic. Enjoy it. It's God-given. Now, Solomon wrote another book. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, but he also wrote another book that many people are afraid to read, The Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a pattern of young lovers, a couple who gets married and enjoys one another. It's a story of the king who marries a beautiful young girl from the north. She's a farm girl, a vineyard girl. And they get married and they enjoy one another. It's the pattern of married life as God intended. Let me read a portion of it to you from the Living Bible, the Song of Solomon in chapter 5. The wife here is looking upon her husband's body and she says, My beloved one is tanned and handsome, better than 10,000 others. His head is purest gold. He has wavy raven's hair. His eyes are like doves beside the water brooks, deep and quiet. His cheeks are like sweetly scented beds of spices. His lips are perfumed lilies. His breath like myrrh. His arms are round bars of gold set with topaz. His body is bright ivory encrusted with jewels. His legs are as pillars of marble set in sockets of finest gold, like cedars of Lebanon. None can rival him. His mouth is altogether sweet, lovable in every way. Now in chapter 7, he responds... And he sees his wife. And Solomon says, How beautiful your tripping feet, O queenly maiden! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of the most skilled craftsman. Your navel is as lovely as a goblet filled with wine. Your waist is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns. Yes, lovely twins... You are tall and slim like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters of dates. I said I will climb up into the palm tree and take hold of its branches. Now may your breasts be like grape clusters, the scent of your breath like apples. Your kisses as exciting as the best of wine, smooth and sweet, causing the lips of those who are asleep to speak. This is in the Bible. Husbands and wives. Do you ever talk that way to your spouse? Who knows what might happen if you did? Just remember if you do. It's in the Bible. It's okay. See, God made your body, including the sexual parts. God designed you to be stimulated. It's not, well, this is a good part of your body, and that's an evil part of your body. It's all good. All of it's good. When God created man and woman upon the earth, He looked at His creation, and what did He say? He said, it is very good. If God said, incidentally, before the fall, that's His original design, it is very good, what right do we have to say, it's bad? Or it's just a duty. No, it's very good. As attested by Solomon and his bride. And I think uh, of the words that God told to Peter in the book of Acts. When he said he wouldn't eat that non-kosher food that was let down on a sheet. God said, what God has cleansed, let no man call common or unclean. And if God has given sex to mankind for enjoyment within the parameters of marriage, by all means, don't call it evil. Don't call it common. Call it good and enjoy it. So the sexual urge given by God, but also must be guided by God. Now let's conclude with the path, shall we? The path of sexual purity. We've already seen part of it. Uh, The first thing for sexual purity when you're married is have a love affair with your wife or your husband continually. That one man, one woman relationship, that enjoying of all of the aspects of one's personality. But I would say there's a couple of more safeguards to keep you safe from an affair. Number one, Don't give yourself the opportunity. Don't give yourself the opportunity. Look at verse 7. Therefore hear me now, my children. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, her being the seductress, the immoral woman. And notice this. Do not go near the door of her house. See how that's put? He didn't say, don't walk in the door. Don't go up to the door. He said, don't even go near it. Don't even get close to it. In other words, go out of your way to avoid it, is the intention here. So be careful not to go near the door of pornography. Don't even get close to the door of certain movies that would depict it as okay. Be careful with becoming too friendly with certain people that you could be attracted to. And men, be careful with your eyes especially. For Jesus said this in Matthew 5 You have heard that it was said by those of old, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, Whoever looks at another woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, as you know, the word for look is not the inadvertent glance, it's the steady, continuous gaze. It's the looking with the intention of lusting. Don't even get close enough to look. Stay away from the path, the opportunity. It's a pity that people think these experts like Dr. Ruth have so much insight. Wow, new, insightful, wow, she's awesome. And she says, fantasies are okay. In fact, she says, You ought to have a few fantasies. As long as you have fantasies, it's okay. You're not really hurting anybody. Because she says, It's only in some mind. And if it's only in some mind, it's okay. Let me tell you something the battle is won or lost in the mind, it's the battleground. If you mentally undress someone or imagine being with that person sexually and you fuel that imagination with pornography and certain other stimuli, it can eventually become a reality. It often does. Studies show that. I've talked to people who have said that. The mind is very important. Case in point, once again, David. Staying home from the battle, walking out one night, checking things out. And there's a woman across the valley on her rooftop, bathing. He couldn't help the first look. She's there. But that double take, he could have helped. It's not like, oh, I'm turning away, it's like, hmm. <laughs> and his mind started playing with and he started imagining, and he called for her. And they had sex together. Interesting, he was a warrior, a great warrior. Very successful, very popular. Uh, in fact, some think he was around 39 or 40 years of age. Just the time when many men are kind of reevaluating their lives, they're kind of unhappy with the goals that they have or haven't reached, and uh, they're very vulnerable. They wonder, I wonder if I still have the stuff. I wonder if I still have the appeal. And they begin testing in areas that they shouldn't be testing. They're very vulnerable for a new fling. So avoid the path and avoid relationships that tempt you. You know, some people that you meet attract you more than others. And you know who they are when you meet them. You feel something. So watch it. Stay away. Secondly, live under the accountability of God. Look at verse 21. We'll close with this verse. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. That's where purity begins, a commitment to God. It does not begin with an agreement with your spouse, though it includes that. It does not begin with an agreement you make with yourself, though it includes that. It begins with living under the all-seeing eye of God. Purity begins with the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And if you're the kind of a person who realizes wherever you go, whatever you see, whatever you do, God is watching and pondering. It can make all the difference. That's where purity really begins. Carpenters, when they build homes, learn quickly how to drive nails into the wood. They hammer hundreds of them a day. And they learn this all-important truth that whatever you look at, you hit. So you always look at the head of the nail, not the thumb holding the nail. Well, I'll just look at my thumb so I won't hit it. No, you will hit it. Whatever you look at, you'll hit. Jesus Christ is the head of the nail in life. We're always looking to Him, always considering Him in all our relationships. And we're pressing forward, as Paul the Apostle put it. It makes all the difference. So purity begins by pleasing God, saying, I'm God's property. This is God's temple. He lives within me. I've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. I live differently. When modern man speaks of the act of sexual intercourse, they either call it making love or simply having sex. You know the Bible uses a different word altogether? The word know. K-N-O-W, not N-O. K-N-O-W. It says, And Adam knew his wife. Doesn't mean they were just acquainted It's the biblical term for intimate sexual intercourse. But why does the Bible use the term no instead of just having sex? Because sex, according to the Bible, is not an act but a relationship that includes an act. It is very beautiful in its context. It is delightful. And husbands and wives should let it burn passionately, enjoy one another. But outside of marriage, it can and will destroy. As you've heard the tape this morning, and as so many have attested to. I want to conclude with a prayer. Uh, It's a prayer that was written, but I think it reflects a great deal of truth. By Harry Hollis, Jr., who said, Lord, it is difficult to know what sex really is. Is it some demon sent to torment me? Or some delicious seducer from reality? It is neither of these, Lord. I know what sex is. It is body and spirit. It is passion and tenderness. It is strong embraces and gentle hand-holding. It is open nakedness and hidden mystery. It is joyful tears on a honeymooner's face. It is tears on a wrinkled face on a golden wedding anniversary. Sex is a quiet look across a room, a love note on a pillow, a rose lying on a breakfast plate. Laughter in the night. Sex is life. Not all of life, but wrapped up in the meaning of life. Sex is your good gift, O God, to enrich life, to continue the race, to communicate, to show me who I am, to reveal my mate, to cleanse through one flesh. Lord, some people say that sex and religion do not mix. But your word says that sex is good. Help me to keep it good in my life. Help me to be open about sex and still protect its mystery. Help me to see that sex is neither demon nor deity. Help me not to climb into a fantasy world with an imaginary sexual partner. Help me in the real world to love the people whom you have created. Teach me that my soul does not have to frown at sex for me to be a Christian. It is hard for many people to say, "'Thank God for sex.'" Because for them, sex is more of a problem than a gift. They need to know that sex and gospel can be linked together again. They need to hear the good news about sex. Show me how I can help them. Thank you, Lord, for making me a sexual being. Thank you for showing me how to treat others with trust and love. Thank you for letting me talk to you about sex. Thank you that I feel free to say, Thank God for sex. It goes without saying. Without it, none of us would be here. But it must be kept where God wants it to be kept, and it will be a stream of water that delights. But dare to take it out of God's parameters. Dare to say, well, God, you're old-fashioned, and I'm hep, and I'm going to do it my way. And you will be drinking polluted water from a sewer and you will incur much pain. God gives these parameters because He loves you. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for Your love, for Your honesty. How grateful we are, Lord, that Your Word does speak so plainly about these things. And we offer our bodies just now before You as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to You, which is our reasonable service. We ask, Lord, that You would take our lives, that we would be holy people, holy vessels, set apart for You, that we would always see ourselves as men and women under the eye of God, watching us when no one else can, and that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to stay far from immoral paths, away from doors, that would open up into kinds of behavior that would entrap and ensnare us. Thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen.